Welcome back to Carlisle's Insights and Indicators podcast with our head of global research, Jason Thomas. I'm Jonathan Blank in communications, and I'm sitting down with Jason today to help you gain insights based on our composite portfolio data from April and analysis of the recent Department of Commerce report on U.S. GDP. All of the data that we discussed today is accurate as of the recording of May 2nd, 2022. Jason, thanks for being here again. Well, thanks for having me again. So we observed surprisingly weak Q1 GDP figures from the Department of Commerce. Jason, how does the data compare to our portfolio data that you've been analyzing? So the the U.S. Commerce Department estimates that the U.S. economy contracted at a 1.4% annualized rate in the first quarter of 2022. This was a big surprise to us since we saw final demand growing at about 2.5% during the first quarter. Really, what what we see, for the most part, is payback from a surprisingly strong Q4 of 2021, uh, which the Commerce Department uh, estimates that the U.S. economy expanded at a 6.9% annualized rate. So there's really a lot of volatility today in these official statistics, largely because of the effort among wholesalers, retailers, and then, of course, manufacturing firms to essentially rebuild their inventories in the wake of the pandemic. During that period, we saw inventories of components, parts, semiconductors, other intermediate goods, and then also finished goods drop by about 50% relative to 2019 levels. So in in this case, a lot of the the rebuilding was associated with foreign sourced equipment, components, parts. And as a result, the portion that is foreign sourced is, is of course, imports that get deducted uh, from GDP because it's it's actually output that's produced outside of the United States. So that was most of the reason for, for this surprising report. But interestingly, the Commerce Department estimated that real domestic demand in the U.S. actually expanded at a 2.6% annual rate, which, of course, is statistically indistinguishable from our 2.5% growth estimate uh, for the first three months of the year. Thanks, Jason. And now that we've covered Q1, let's expand our view to the first four months of the year, since you just went through our composite portfolio data for April. When you look at the U.S. data through April, Jason, what are the takeaways for investors? Well, first, you know, I would say April data that we just collected and, and analyzed at the end of last weekend into the weekend suggests that the economy is in the U.S. is still growing at, at roughly the same rate as observed in, in the first quarter. We actually estimated a growth rate that is implied on a portfolio composite basis of about 2.8%. So growth is still, you know, reasonably strong. Of course, you know, if you're expecting 3.7% growth as the IMF anticipated this year, I mean, we, we don't see that sort of uh, strength. But certainly, again, it's pretty comparable to the demand growth in the first quarter. In fact, slightly stronger because of ongoing strength in business investment. A lot of that is, is digital transformation budgets. We also see fixed investment in housing, you know, both despite this, this huge run-up in mortgage interest rates. Uh, about 200 basis points year to date, up over 5% now. We still see lots of housing construction, and and that's because you have rental vacancy rates that are at a 40-year low. Uh, You also see the actual inventories of homes for sale that are actually actively listed down about 60% from pre-pandemic levels. So even with higher mortgage interest rates, there's still really a a problem with cumulative underinvestment in the housing stock, and, and that means that that's actually contributing to growth as well. So first point, I think, is just, you know, the U.S. has uh, still no real signs of a material slowdown 
perhaps we'll see those later this month. I don't want to get ahead of ourselves, but I think that that was that was fairly encouraging. And then the second point I would I would say that that was also fairly encouraging from the data it is just more signs of this supply demand imbalance caused by the pandemic really narrowing. And of course, this supply demand imbalance is is the main reason that we had this outburst of inflation. So as we see that the narrowing, you know, one would expect that inflation rates are going to come down. And, and in fact, we did see some signs of core inflation not only peaking, but actually, again, signs that, that it's actually dropping a bit. And so really, very simply, what we saw is a moderation, in fact, a slight decline in durable goods consumption in, in April. At the same time, we continue to see output, industrial production, manufacturing output growing very rapidly. And so through the first four months of the year, we see uh, manufacturing output in the U.S. expanded at about an 8% annual rate, so very, very high. And, and over that same period, goods demand growing by less than 1%. So normally this would be a, <laughs> a source of concern because you would say, boy, why, why is output growing so fast when, when actual sales, actual demand is, is growing not nearly as, as rapidly? But in this case, it's actually very healthy, and it's just that effort to, to rebuild inventories and rebuild productive capacity so as to have cumulative production of, of all these goods back in line uh, with final sales. You know, just again, as, as background, during the pandemic, when people were stayed at home, they spent at home. They also canceled trips, uh, stopped eating out, stopped attending live events, and a lot of that money was instead channeled to durable goods like cars and boats and electronics equipment and appliances and, and, uh, and furniture. And so really the inventories of, of all those goods declined very rapidly because production, manufacturing was, was also impacted by the pandemic. So you had a, at the same time, there was a surge in spending on all those goods. Of course, you had about a 7% uh, decline in, in output during that period. So, so this has been a long process. It's, it's been very challenging. You know, lots of other perturbations have, have you know, slowed this, this recovery, but uh, it looks like about 56% of that supply-demand gap opened by the pandemic has now been closed over the last six months. So again, this, this is fairly encouraging because that implies, again, not only peak inflation, but that at some point, hopefully, you know, over the next three to four months, we'll, we'll actually see inflation rates that, that actually start heading back down to more normal levels at a, at a you know, fairly rapid rate. So Jason, just to summarize, what you're observing in the U.S. is the following. You believe there continues to be relatively strong growth, an increased balance between demand and supply, and there are signs that inflation may decline. What are you seeing in other regions around the world? Yeah, well, you know, it's, it's certainly not as encouraging in April. And, and first, you know, just to start with China. China is going through a very difficult period because of the Omicron variant and interacting, of course, with China's zero COVID policy. So you've had um, you know, very severe lockdowns and lockdowns have, have impacted about 70 metro areas. And so you know, the, the data have, have been hit very hard uh, as, as a result. I mean, the economy grew pretty rapidly actually in, in January and February. Our data were consistent with growth in excess of 5%. But then, because of the lockdowns really starting in March, we saw you know fairly large year-over-year declines in a lot of our metrics in, in China in March, which implied that the economy contracted. And then April's data were, were even worse 
you know, in some cases, 10 to 12 percent year over year declines. So, you know, when we try to put all that together, it looks like domestic demand in China contracted through the first four months of the year, but at about a 5 percent annual rate. So that's pretty pretty significant. I, I think the important thing that I would point out here is that this is not an economy that has slowed or experienced any sort of you know in, in endogenous shock. It, this is really explicit policy designed to curtail economic activity, suppress economic activity for a short period of time to bring outbreaks of the virus under control. And so as a result, what this suggests, and, and we saw this in 2020, is that rather than a slowing economy that suggests that this is going to persist or you know for, for multiple months or later in the year, what we're likely to see is an economy that is growing much more rapidly two to three months from now than we would have otherwise expected. There, there's a lot of makeup growth, a lot of makeup economic activity that is coming. And also, I think it's important to note that the policymakers have also suggested that there's a lot of stimulus on the way. And in addition to that stimulus, there is also suggestions from policymakers that there is going to be an easing of some of the regulations and some of the scrutiny that's been applied to the tech sector. So I think that you know, entering the year, the economy had slowed in, in Q4, picked up a bit in Q1, but there were still ongoing concerns about the property sector, ongoing concerns about regulatory intrusions into the tech sector. And I think what we're likely to see in, in again, two to three months' time is an economy that is growing very rapidly as manufacturing logistics firms try to make up for the backlogs created by this period of lockdowns. And then at the same time, much more accommodative government policy, both in terms of fiscal and monetary stimulus, but then also as it relates to to regulation and and how that regulation is applied to the property and, and technology sectors. So really, again, much, much worse data right now, but perhaps uh, leading to, to somewhat better data in the future. In, in terms of Europe, I'll speak to Europe very quickly. You know, I, I think that we, we have seen a bit more slowing first in, in the household sector. In the U.S., we did see a decline to some degree in goods consumption, which is no surprise, again, given the boom in goods consumption during the pandemic. But in, in Europe, it seems a bit more broad-based. And I think it's because you know Ukraine is, is very close to consumers in, in Western Europe, uh, much more so that, than the United States. And I think it's not just the geographic proximity. I think it's also mental. And I think that the hit to consumer confidence from Russia's invasion of Ukraine is greater. Also, you do have larger spike in energy prices, and that, of course, leads to a larger negative real income shock for the household sector. And, and so we, we see a bit more slowing there. And then secondarily, that energy price shock is also evident in the manufacturing sector. There are many manufacturing processes that, of course, rely on natural gas as a heat source, as a feedstock. And this exponential rise in, in natural gas prices is making some of those processes uneconomic. So not only narrowing margins, but but making it so you know it's having a bigger impact on output. Now, I think what what is important to consider is that this energy shock and its impact is also leading to I think really dramatic increase in in the investment opportunity set as it relates to energy in Europe, and that is going to accelerate investment in renewables. But I think it's also going to lead to a really significant increase in investments in energy infrastructure. LNG terminals, things like that. And then also even upstream oil and gas investment, uh, maybe in the North Sea and and elsewhere, also on the continent of Europe. And and so this has, again, slowed growth and and been challenging in the short term. But I think it's also revealed vulnerabilities that are likely to lead to tailwinds, to even faster growth in the future, 
as, as many of the economies actually invest much more in energy than, than has been observed over the past several years. And, and this overall theme is something that I think can be applied broadly, you know, more globally, which is to say that past underinvestment in inventories, in productive capacity, in, in you know, domestic manufacturing sectors, uh, in housing, and then, of course, especially in energy, means that the inflation that we've seen, some of the, the price spikes, some of the disruption to supply chains, it all points to a future, you know, three to five year outlook where there's actually going to be a lot more investment, a lot more capital deployment opportunities to relieve some of these supply constraints that then one might have expected really six to or even 12 months ago. Well, Jason, thanks for the economic trip around the world today. Really appreciate it. And I know all of the investors listening really appreciate it as well. Really look forward to uh, sitting down again next month. Thank you. Great. Well, thanks again.